0: let's get started so we have this mitzvah today the mitzvah is in the right after hashem says that we have an obligation to believe in him he says we're not allowed to believe in other gods okay so what we're going to try to do today is we're going to discuss a little bit about what that actual prohibition is then we'll spend some time looking at how did it develop in the history of the world that people actually started believing in other gods right so You have Adam and Kaaba, they don't believe in other gods, right? You have no, how did people start believing in other gods, right? And the Rambam is going to have a, 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 you know, a history about how people started believing in other gods. Then we'll talk about how today we no longer have that same desire to believe in other gods, right? When we look at what people used to do and we look throughout the prophets, right? And we see other people worshiping other gods. We see kings convincing people to worship other gods. You're like, what were you thinking? And we'll see a Gemara that explains why we no longer have that same desire, but how that desire was taken away from a desire for idol worship and was put into other places instead. Okay, so let's begin. Source number one, in the that we not believe in a God besides God alone. That we not believe in a God besides God, may he be blessed alone. <coughs> As it is stated, you shall have no other gods in front of me. And its understanding is that you not believe in another God except me. And Ramban, may his memory be blessed, wrote, You will only find that scripture states other gods about belief of the heart. But concerning their making, it will never state, Do not make other gods, since the expression making does not sit with others, since they cannot be made. What he's pointing out is like this it says, Do not believe in other gods. And then it says, Do not make a pestle, right? A pestle is like a, an a image, a pestle is a sculpture. Do not make a sculpture. You can't say don't make other gods because obviously it's not possible. The Torah is going to be very precise. So the Torah is going to tell you, don't believe in other gods because you might believe in other gods. But in terms of not making abode zarah, not making idols, that the Torah is going to tell you, don't make an idol. It's not going to tell you, don't make a god. And this commandment is the great fundamental principle of the Torah as everything is dependent on it. As they may their memory be blessed said, anyone who concedes to idolatry is as if he denied the whole entire Torah. And it is the same whether he accepts anything as a God besides only God or whether he worships it according to its worship, meaning to say in the way that those that believe in it worship it or even not according to its worship. What he's explaining over here is something interesting. Typically, what we say is that when it comes to doing something wrong in Judaism, there is an action and then there's a thought. And the action is far more significant than a thought. Idol worship is one of the few exceptions where if you have in your mind that you're planning on worshiping another idol, if you have in your mind that you believe in another God, that itself is just as forbidden as if you actually engage in the worship by doing an action. What are the... The tells us over here is there's two general categories of worshiping idols. There are the four main ways that they used to worship idols and those apply to every single idol. If you do one of these actions to every single idol, you have worshiped an idol. What are these actions? They are sacrificing an animal in front of it. They are bringing incense. They are pouring wine or water in front of it and they are bowing down to it. And all of those are considered to be categories that no matter what type of idol it is, you are in violation of the prohibition of worshiping idols if you engage in this behavior. Aside from that, very interesting stuff that the Gemara tells us is the way people used to worship idols. Famously, there is the Baal Pa'ar that we have in the Torah, where the way that they worshiped the Baal Pa'ar was they actually used to walk up to the idol, and they would turn around and defecate in front of the idol. That was actually the method of worship. Now, if you walk over to any other idol in the world and you defecate in front of it, you have done a great mitzvah of denigrating right, an idol. Because by, to defecate in front of it, there's no greater b'zayan, there's no greater humiliation of the idol. However, if you do that in front of the Baal peor idol, where that's actually the method of worship, that's actually still a prohibition. There's another idol called Markulis, where the way they would worship it, they would take a stone and they would throw a stone at it. So if you go over to any other idol, you throw a stone at it, great, you did a mitzvah. <laughs> if you throw a stone at the markulis, not only have you not done a mitzvah, you've actually violated the prohibition of worshiping the idol, because that is the action that is typically done associated with the worship of his idol. The root of this commandment is revealed and known. It's particulars, for example, that which they said that if one accepts any of the creations as a god, and even if he concedes that the Holy One, blessed be he, rules over him and over his god, transgresses upon you shall have no other god. What is the thing which is called according to the way of its worship, and not according to the way of its worship, so on and so forth, all of these laws are found in the Gemara in Abu Zarah and also in Shabbat, okay? Now, it's important to recognize this point that even if you think to yourself that I don't have a God, but I recognize that the sun and the moon and the stars have exceptional power, an independent power. It's granted to them by God, but it is some sort of independent power. And then I want to worship the sun and the moon and the stars, but as a way of idealizing a abstract esoteric God that itself falls under the category of idol worship as well. Um, let's see. Okay, so then we're going to go through lots of different laws about this. Exactly how do you negate an idol? So the law is like this. If you have a Jew who has worshipped an idol, there is no way to negate that idol. That idol now has the status of being an idol, and it's going to have to be destroyed. And until it's completely destroyed, it still has the status of an idol. However, If you have a non-Jew who worships an idol, another non-Jew can actually come over and what is called bimivato, nullify its status as an idol, by saying this is no longer an idol, and that will nullify its status. Now, let's say a non-Jew starts worshiping a mountain, right? You're not allowed to benefit from an idol. We're not allowed to, (laughs) to take a shortcut through a church because that's called benefiting from idolatry. However, let's say a non-Jew starts worshiping a mountain, right? So what do you do? You're not allowed to walk on the mountain anymore? Non-Jew does not have the power to create the prohibition on a mountain that is actually part of the earth. Interesting case that came up in the Holocaust often, where you had people who were going to be hiding from the Nazis, right? Are you allowed to hide from the Nazis in a church, right? On the one hand, it is related to the prohibition of idol worship. And idol worship is one of the cardinal three sins that you cannot violate even a threat to life. So the answer really is, if it is actual idol worship, then it would still be problematic. But if you're going into a church to hide from the the Nazis, that itself is not idol worship. And that would be permitted. My Rosh from Zalek Epstein, his memory should be for a blessing. He was one of the students of the Mir Yeshiva in Poland, and he escaped from Poland to Shanghai. And he said they, they went, there was a priest who actually was forging documents for them. And they went into the church and they went you know, to meet the priest And he forged the documents for them that they needed so that they get their visas to Shanghai, China. And then they ended up in you know, coming through Seattle after the war. Um, so yeah, that, that's an example of how you are permitted to benefit from something that is associated but not actually the idol itself, right? Okay? We're up to three now. And it is practiced by males and females in every place and at all times, and one who transgresses it and worships idolatry according to the way of its worship, or with the four worships that we wrote, even not according to the way of its worship, with witnesses and a warning, is stoned. And if it is inadvertent, he is obligated to bring a fixed sin offering. And this commandment is included in the seven commandments that all the people of the world were commanded. However, right, this is one of the seven Noahide laws. However, there are differences between Israel and the other nations in the details, and it is all elucidated there in Avodah Zarah. So he's going to discuss some of the differences, and then I want to point out one more difference as well. Among the differences between Israel and the other nations is the matter of the commandments that are incumbent upon all, is that an Israelite will never be liable for the death penalty without witnesses and a warning. But the other nations do not require a warning, since there is no difference for them between inadvertent and volitional. And also they can become liable with the admission of their mouths, which is not the case with Israel, who requires witnesses. And there's yet another difference is when the nations transgress one of their commandments, they are always liable for the death penalty. It's a very interesting law. The Gemara tells us that for non-Jews, the only punishment for transgression of laws is death penalty. But Jews, we know, sometimes we bring a sacrifice. Sometimes we get lashes. Sometimes we get death penalty. Right. So there's actually a difference in that. Now, another difference that there's a very interesting dispute amongst the Rishonim, amongst the early Talmudic commentators, is like this. Non-Jews are not allowed to believe in other idols, but let's say they believe in a trinity. Is that considered like believing in other gods? For a Jew, it certainly is. For a Jew, if we believe in a trinity, if we believe that God has other creations that we're allowed to worship, that's a part of him, let's say, definitely Avodah Zarah. Classic. For a non-Jew, it's not so simple. According to some Rishonim, it's not a problem. So according to some Rishonim, what Christians believe, what Catholics believe, is not actually a Whereas according to other Rishonim, what Catholics believe is a because they believe that believing in the Trinity or believing in that God could take a human form, that itself is also idol worship for, for non-Jews as well. Everybody agrees it's idol worship for Jews. The question is, is it also in, the, in violation of the non-Jewish commandment, of the commandment of the non-Jews not to believe in other gods? Okay, next source, source number two, is the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam. And the Rambam is going to go through the history of the world to explain how is it possible that people can start calling other, can start calling other things God and, and, and attributing power to other forces. In the days of Enosh, the sons of man erred exceedingly. The advice of the wise man of that generation was nullified. And even Enosh himself was among the victims of that folly. Their mistake was this. Seeing, said they, that God created these stars and planets to rule the world, that he placed them high above the sheer honors with them, for they are ministers who render service in his presence. It is proper that they be praised and glorified and honored. This is the will of God, to exalt and honor him, who he exalted and honored, even as a king desires to honor those who stand in his presence. For such is the honor of the king. As soon as this matter is rooted in their heart, they commence to erect temples in honor of the stars to offer sacrifices to them to praise and glorify them in words and bow down to them in order to reach the will of God by this evil idea. This was the groundwork for the worship of stars. Now, what was the impetus for this? The impetus is like this. It is very difficult to feel connected to a completely abstract force that you will never have a deep level of understanding of God. So their thought was in truth, it was a good thought, right? They thought listen what we can do is we can develop a greater level of connection to god if we can actually feel connected to something that we can't see something that in theory we could even touch right you know if we could fly to the moon so that was the groundwork right but what happens is it starts like that but ultimately the very idea of saying that we need to have a deeper level of understanding of god before we can connect to him is a folly and what ends up leading to is to now think that these forces themselves have their own powers. And what ends up happening is, they end up thinking to themselves, well, if these forces have their own powers, and they start attributing personification to the forces. And what that means is they start thinking of these forces as being similar to humans, right? What's the conclusion? The conclusion is what we find in the Greek mythology, where the gods are impetuous, the gods are lustful. The gods have completely human desires. Now, what's the role of the gods in the the Greek mythology? The role of the gods is we are supposed to propitiate them, and we're supposed to act in ways that they would act. Well, guess what we attribute to them as humans? We attribute to them animalistic behavior, and then it becomes okay for us to behave in an animalistic fashion. This all starts from the idea of saying we need to have a deeper understanding and connection to a god. It cannot be so abstract. But ultimately, this is the result. We're up to the second part of this. In the long process of time, there arose among the sons of man false prophets who asserted that God commanded them, saying, Worship yon star or all of the stars and offer sacrifices to it and compound for it thus and such and erect a temple for it and you its image so that all the people, women and children, and the rest of the populace included, bow down to it. He moreover describes for them a form that he invented. And tells them that this was the image of yon star, which was pointed out to him in his prophecy. In this manner, they commenced to draw images in temples, beneath trees, upon mountaintops and elevated places, where they congregated to bow down to them and sermonize to the people, saying, this image has in its power to do good and evil and is proper to worship it and be in awe of it. Their priests say unto them, by this worship, you will increase and succeed. Do thus and thus, but not that and this. Then still other frauds rose up to assert that the star itself or the planet or the angel spoke to them instructed saying, worship me thus and thus. So what happens is people who are charlatans and frauds realize that this is an easy way for them to assume power, right? It's really coming from a corrupt place. If they lie and say that there was a prophecy and they have a prophecy that they have its direct connection to the God, then they can become more and more powerful, right? So what ends up happening is he goes through the Ram goes through exactly how it goes, how it plays out. That people start thinking that there, the, there are other forces in the world. And this is going on for a couple of hundred years. That there, The idea is there are other forces in the world. There are some unique individuals in each generation, as the Ramam tells us, Hanoch, Mesushalach, Noach, Shem, Ever. These are individuals who never lost sight of the fact of monotheism, never lost sight of the fact that there is only one force that created the world. And there is only one force who has any sway. And on this path, the Ramah finishes, the world continued its course of circuitry until the birth of the firmest pillar of the world, Abraham, our father. Okay, so far so good. So the next step is like this. The next step we have to ask ourselves is, probably something that might've bothered you once, why is it that there was such a desire for idol worship previously? And today there's no such desire for idol worship, right? We don't find this, it's not something that we have some sort of deep desire for. The Gemara actually tells us that um, in Amora, I think it was Rava, was one time talking about Menashe. Menashe is considered to be the most evil Jewish king, and he, he brought idolatry into the temple itself, Mikdash. So he's talking about Menashe, and he says, I cannot believe that he would have done this. And that night he has a dream. Menashe comes to him in a dream and tells him, if you would have been alive during my time period, you would have crawled on hands and knees to worship idols, Right. So what's very important to recognize is like this. There are two different great or super categories of ways in which we stray from the path that we're supposed to be on. And these two different ways are called minus and znos. Minus means intellectual perversions, right? Intellectual mistakes, not mistakes that are based on your material desires that lead you away from the proper path, but rather mistakes that you make intellectually in terms of what your role in life is supposed to be. So the one level is called heresy, and that would be category avodazara certainly falls into the level of heresy, right? And then the other level is what we call znus. znus literally means to engage in illicit relations, but it's really the header category for when we listen to our bodily urges, as opposed to letting our brain determine our path in life, okay? So this Gemara we're about to do in Avodah Zarah tells us that the Ansheik Nessus HaGedola, the men of the great assembly, who were the leaders of the Jewish nation when they came back to Israel after the first exile, right? There were 120 people on the Sanhedrin, on the great court. Typically, there's only 70, but they were 120. And they instituted a bunch of different laws at that point. Now, one of the things that they instituted, this is including, by the way, Mordechai from the Purim story. This is Ezra, Nehemiah, right? Malachi. So. One of the things that they instituted is they actually prayed to God to destroy the desire for idol worship. Now, why did they pray to God to destroy the desire for idol worship? Let's see. The Gemara tells us in source number three. It's the Gemara in Yuma. The Gemara recounts the event described in the verses. The verse states, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. What was said? Rav said, and some say it was Rabbi Yochanan who said, whoa, whoa, it is this the evil inclination for idol worship that destroyed the temple and burned its sanctuary and murdered all the righteous ones and caused the Jewish people to be exiled from their land. And it still dances among us. It still affects us. Didn't you give it to us solely for the purpose of our receiving reward for overcoming it? We do not want it and we do not want its reward. We are prepared to forgo the potential benefits for overcoming the evil inclination as long as it departs from us. Very important idea that the Gemara is expressing. The fact that there is an evil inclination in the world is given to us for our own benefit. However, sometimes people could say, I'd rather not engage in the higher testing that will give me a, a greater benefit if I engage in that higher test and pass, because I am afraid I will fail. In response to their prayer, a note fell to them from the heavens upon which was written truth, indicating that God accepted the request. Mark makes a parenthetical observation of said, learn from this the seal of the Holy One, blessed be he, is true. In response to the indication of divine acceptance, they observed the fast for three days and three nights, and he delivered the evil inclination for idol worship to them. A form of a fiery lion cup came forth from the chamber of the Holy of Holies. Zechariah the prophet said to the Jewish people, this is the evil inclination for idol worship, as it is stated in the verse that refers to this event, and he said, this is the evil one. The use of the word this in Zechariah, Indicates that the evil inclination was perceived in a physical form. When they caught hold of it, one of its ears fell, and it let out a shriek of pain that was heard for four hundred parasangs. The Gemara now is going into a clearly um, allegorical story to explain what exactly the nature of the relationship of trying to rid the world of this desire for idol worship really took on. So they end up getting rid of this evil inclination, and they follow this advice and we're freed of the evil inclination for idol worship. Now, the way it works in this world is there are always counterparts. Things are always properly calibrated. When you remove the desire for idol worship, right? So you took away one desire, but something else comes in its stead because the way it's supposed to be laid out in life is we are supposed to be balanced between the evil inclination and the good inclination. Well, once you take away the evil inclination for idol worship, you've removed this intellectual idol, the intellectual evil inclination. So what takes its place? What do we do to take its place, right? There has to be something that takes its place or else we would no longer be perfectly poised between good and evil. And the reason we're put into this world is to be placed between good and evil, is to be forced to choose between what is good and what is bad, right? And if it's not even choices, right? If it's too easy to choose the good, it's not a fair game. And then once again, It's as if God did not give us any free will. The whole idea of free will is that we should be perfectly poised between the good and the evil. And then we have to make the right choice. So let's read this, this, uh, the Rambam. And the Rambam tells us something very interesting. The Rambam tells us, not the Rambam actually, sorry. I want to look at the the next source. The next source is the Gemara in Shabbos. And the Gemara in Shabbos explains what idolatry has turned into today. In other words... What that desire for intellectual perversion, where does it lead us today that we no longer have a desire to worship idols? Gemara asks, say that you heard that Rabbi Yehuda rules that one is liable for performing a labor not needed for its own sake in the case of a constructive act. Did you hear him deem one liable in the case of a destructive act? Okay, so here's an interesting halacha. There is a dispute between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon. When you engage in an action, That is a forbidden action on Shabbos, but you did not engage in this action because you want the result for which the Torah forbade this action. For example, you're not allowed to extinguish a fire on Shabbos. Why? What's the paradigm for extinguishing a fire on Shabbos? Well, in the Mishkan, when they wanted to use a marker, right, they wanted to make a mark on the two Um, the two pillars of the Mishkan, right? They had many different pillars of the Mishkan. And like everybody who builds a a construction site, you want to label them so you know which one goes next to which one. So how did they make the mark on the pieces of wood? What they would do is they would take a coal and they would take a coal and they would be able to rub it and the coal would leave behind a mark. Now, so the reason why they extinguished in the Mishkan was for the sake of creating a coal that they could use for writing. Let's say you extinguish a fire, but not for the sake of creating a coal because you don't want a fire. So that's doing the forbidden action, but not for the reason why it was constructive in the time of the Mishkan. Is that still considered liable or not? So Rabbi Yehuda says, You are still liable. Rabbi Shimon says, If you do the same action as was done in the Mishkan, but not for the intention as was done in the Mishkan, you are exempt. Even though Rabbi Yehuda says you're liable, the Gemara asks, Let's say he does the action, but it's actually a destructive action. It's not just a case where it is a the, done for this, for something that was forbidden because it was done in the Mishkan, but for a different intention. It's not just a different intention. It's actually a destructive intention. Perhaps over there, Rabbi Yehuda would say, you're exempt. Rabbi Oven said, this case where one rends his garment in anger, in other words, tearing something. When did they tear in the Mishkan? They would tear the, the, uh, the covering that they put on top of the Mishkan this covering, beautiful covering, they would sometimes tear it and then put it back together again if it was, you know, things were out of place. So, tearing, but not for the sake of, re, of, re, um, of reconstituting it and sewing it back together, is that also forbidden? So that shouldn't be forbidden because it's a destructive act. Now, the oven said, in this case, one rended his garment in anger. It's actually constructive because in doing so, he assuages his anger. Rending his garment calms him, therefore it can be said that he derives benefit from the act of rending, and it is consequently a constructive act. Gemara now asks, and is it, uh, is it at all permitted to tear in that manner? Wasn't it taught in a that Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar says in the name of Chilfa bar Agra, who said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri, one who rends his garments in his anger, or who breaks his vessels in his anger, or who scatters his money in his anger, should be like an idol worshiper in your eyes. That is the craft of the evil inclination. Martin tells us something very interesting. There is no longer a desire to worship idols, but when you give in to your anger, you are doing exactly the same thing as an idol worshiper does. Because what you're doing is you are taking your brain and you're allowing your brain to make crooked calculations that will end up leading you into a place where you could even worship idols. So although today we no longer have a desire for idol worship, we have to recognize the Gemara says that becoming angry and losing your temper completely and losing yourself in that moment of anger is just as bad as idol worship. Today it tells him to do this and tomorrow it tells him to do that until eventually when he no longer controls himself, it tells him to worship idols and he goes and worships idols. Abiy Oven said what verse alludes to this, there shall not be a strange God within you and you shall not bow to a foreign God. What is the strange god that is within a person's body say that it is the evil inclination so what the gemara is telling us is this is one example of of becoming angry how that's the equivalent of worshiping idols a different gemara tells us another example of someone who's as if he worshiped idols is someone whose desire for money is all encompassing right the desire for money what it shows is a lack of recognition of the role of god in this world right if you think well if i have If I work really, really, really hard, I'll end up with a lot, a lot of money. And then if I have a lot, a lot of money, I won't have any issues with X, Y, and Z. It's just a lack of recognition of the nature of the relationship between us and God. And that itself, removing the place of God in this world, right? Not realizing that we we work and then we get what God decides we deserve, right? As we learned in in the Parsha of the Mun, right? As we have the the Mun comes from heaven to teach us this lesson. When we forget that and we lose sight of that, It's in essence the equivalent of a desire for idol worship, right? So we no longer have a desire for Mammon, who was one of the gods in in the Canaanite uh, pantheon, but instead it was taken over by a desire for Mammon, which is the Aramaic word for money, right? I think this is something that we can all appreciate, that sometimes you see people get so caught up in their desire to make sure that their bank account has X amount of dollars, and then once it has X, it's 2X and 3X and 4X, that this itself almost replaced the desire for idol worship. So although today most of us are not going to be struggling with our desire to worship idols, we could still be struggling with both anger and a desire for money. And we have to recognize that these are both very problematic. And and to some extent, they're just as problematic as a desire for idol worship. Okay.